Meet Katherine Patterson. She's a living legend and one of the most famous children's book authors of our time. Children often ask me, oh, did I have a terabithia when I was a child? And I said, well, I had many terabithias because I moved so much. But I would always try to find a place, a secret place where I could play. And I'm just often by myself. But I would play all the parts in my imaginary games. Maybe at some point in your life, you've had a place like Terabithia. Whether it was when you were a child, or perhaps even right now, if you happen to be a kid listening to this podcast. And what Catherine's about to tell us is especially intriguing. This idea that whatever your Terabithia was, what it meant to you, it stays with you forever. Somehow, if you don't have an actual Terabithia when you're young, it's very hard to have a, one inside of you when you grow up. And we all need that secret place inside of us. I'm Lindsay Jacobson, and this is Remember Reading from HarperCollins, a podcast where we talk about classic children's books. And on today's show, we're bringing you the 1977 classic, Bridge to Terabithia by Katherine Patterson. She won the 1978 Newbery Medal for this book that takes readers on an all-encompassing journey through the lives of Jess Ahrens and Leslie Burke, a fifth grade boy and girl who become best friends. I wasn't sure if it would be published, that anybody would understand it. So the response to the book was absolutely unbelievable and overwhelming to me. As readers, we get to know Leslie and Jess, both at home and in school, where they have to deal with a bully who they later come to empathize with. And of course, there's their shared imagination, which leads them to create Terabithia, a magical kingdom in the woods where they're king and queen. We need a place, she said, just for us. It would be so secret that we would never tell anyone in the whole world about it. Jess came swinging back and dragged his feet to stop. She lowered her voice almost to a whisper. It might be a whole secret country, she continued, and you and I would be the rulers of it. Her words stirred inside of him. He'd like to be a ruler of something, even something that wasn't real. Okay, he said. Where could we have it? Over there in the woods, where nobody would come and mess it up. But in a tragic twist, the book also makes us confront the unexpected death of a child. And over the years, what has happened is that the reader has brought their own grief to the book, or their own fear of death to the book, and have made the book something that I could not possibly have made on my own because I know the books that I've shared with my children. It gave us a language to talk about things that were difficult. And you can talk about what happens in Bridge to Terabithia. And it's a safer platform for talking about death than maybe saying, now I want to talk to you about death. <laughs> we're going to spend most of the show hearing from Katherine Patterson about her life, her book, and her devotion to advancing children's literature and literacy. And later on, we'll hear about Bridge to Terabithia from the perspective of two current middle grade fiction writers, Laurel Snyder and Margaret Peterson Haddix. They'll share with us how much they love the book and how their work touches on similar themes around growing up, relationships, imagination, and also grief. Katherine Patterson graciously joined me for a Skype conversation from her apartment in Vermont, where she lives with her dog, Pixie. I've lived in Vermont longer than anywhere now, so I really consider Vermont home. 
After her husband passed away in 2013, Catherine, along with Pixie, moved out of their 1830s farmhouse into a retirement community where she's currently living. I could still go back to my church and I can keep my friends and it was a good move for me. Catherine's 86 years old and most days she does a crossword puzzle. It's not because I think it particularly helps my brain, it's because I enjoy it. And from time to time, she enjoys a good movie. Although I find that my sense of humor is not the same sense of humor that in modern comedies very often. But as for TV... I watch a lot of PBS because I figure it's going to be worth my time. She's a fan of Downton Abbey, The Crown, and Victoria. So you can say there's a running theme here. But she doesn't really describe herself as a big TV viewer. I only want to watch it when it's worth my time because I I nearly always have a book sitting there waiting for me, which I know is going to be worth my time. And her love of books goes back to a very early age. I was very fortunate because I came from a household in which I was read to from birth. I had an older brother and sister. And, of course, as soon as I was born, I was included in the evening reading before bedtime. And I learned to read when I was three or four because I couldn't stand not being able to read. I knew the magic of books from birth. We had all of A.A. Mill and Beatrix Potter and Kenneth Graham and uh, Robert Louis Stevenson. Those were my earliest books. The first book I remember reading, uh, which is also set in England, but by an American, uh, was The Secret Garden. That's the first book I remember reading on my own, although, of course, I read other books on my own before I read The Secret Garden. Catherine actually grew up reading these books in China, where she was born and mainly spent the first part of her childhood. I was bilingual from a very early age. In fact, there's a letter from my father to his mother in which he sort of expresses exasperation at this two-year-old who can't be shut up in either language, but he says it in a nicer way. In the 1930s, Catherine's parents were missionaries living and working in China. And when I asked Catherine about whether she had aspired to become a writer from a young age, she told me the following story. When she was in second grade, Catherine had written a poem as part of a writing assignment. It ended up getting published in the Shanghai American School newspaper. And this is the way it went. Pat, pat, pat. There is the rat. Where is the cat? Pat, pat, pat. And beside it was a a letter from Miss Effie Shields, my second grade teacher, that said the second greatest work is not up to our usual standards this week. So my first published work was published alongside uh, my first critical review, which was not, as you see, a, a rave review. So nobody thought I was going to be a writer. I didn't think I was going to be a writer. Instead, she had other visions for herself. Delusions of grandeur. I didn't know when I was in elementary school if I wanted to be a a missionary or a movie star. I loved to act, and uh, I was in a lot of plays. And later in college, Catherine majored in English and eventually ended up going to graduate school. There was a graduate school teacher who asked me if I ever thought of being a writer. And I said, no, no, I I wouldn't want to add another mediocre writer to the world. And she said, well, maybe... That's what God is calling you to be. And I thought, I don't think God needs a lot of mediocre writers. So I didn't become a writer, and then she got me my first writing job (laughs) some years later. I thought, well, I'm going to be home with all these little children. 
not going to go back to school teaching anytime soon. I think I'll try to be a writer. And I wrote for seven years and published one short story, which killed the magazine that published it the next month. Not what you quite expect to hear from an author who ended up writing more than 30 books over the course of her career, and who won the Newbery Medal not once, but twice. First in 1978 for Bridge to Terabithia, and then again in 1981 for Jacob Have I Loved. She also won the National Book Award in 1979 for The Great Gilly Hopkins, which was designated as a Newbery Honor Book that year as well. So for all you aspiring writers out there, don't lose hope, as Catherine reminds us that writing is always a process. You have to start at a very low level. Not, I don't know many people who are just born with the ability to write a great book. I think reading taught me, well, partly taught me how powerful literature can be, and also it taught me how stories work, how paragraphs work, how a sentence works. And, uh, you know, I sort of absorbed it by osmosis because I read so much, which is one reason I never feel like I can teach writing because I'm not exactly sure how I learned to write except that I read so much. So that's the, that's the advice I give. I do think that there are people who can help you learn how to form a story, uh, but they can't give you a soul to write it with. That's your business. But in this era of constant media consumption, Catherine does worry about children and their ability to read deeply. She's so passionate about this issue, in fact, that she's been the vice president of the board of directors for the National Children's Book and Literacy Alliance. What our concern is, is for the availability of books and for the ability for children to read well and to read intensively and to to receive the gifts that literature can give us. I think one problem with our society right now is that people, they may be able to decode, but they don't really know how to read, and they don't take the time to read carefully and intensively. That's one reason our newspapers are in trouble, and uh, we are willing to take sound bites as facts and news instead of reading and thinking. But that's something that that we need to work on. And uh, I do get worried when the feeling is that if every child had internet access, that the world would be a good place. I think if every child had access to a wonderful library, the world would be a better place. Bridge to Terabithia is the sixth book that we've explored on Remember Reading. And so far, we've covered Charlotte's Web, Ella Enchanted, A Series of Unfortunate Events, The Mouse and the Motorcycle, and Wayside School. So if you've missed any of those episodes, be sure to go back and check them out. And what we really love doing on the podcast is telling you the story behind the story. So we're now at that moment with Bridge to Terabithia. Just a heads up, what you're about to hear is some pretty emotional stuff. Catherine is going to tell us about the tragedy that inspired her to write this book. I wrote the book because my son David's best friend, who was a girl named Lisa Hill, and they did everything together. He had come to the school new and was weird, and and he and Lisa found each other, and they played together every afternoon after school, and they talked on the phone at night, and 
Then the summer after the second grade, Lisa went to Bethany Beach with her family. And I've heard it, a story told by a person who was on the beach that day. And she looked up and she saw on a rock above the beach, a child dancing. And she thought it was such a beautiful picture. And then a bolt of lightning came out of nowhere and struck the child. Um, they said later that lifeguards that had heard thunder way off in the distance, but it was not nearly close enough to empty the beach. And no one else was hurt, just Lisa who was killed. And so I had to try to explain that to my eight-year-old, which of course I was unable to do. I couldn't even explain it to myself, but I thought a story has to make sense. A story has a beginning and a middle and an end. And when you get to the end, even if intellectually you haven't made sense of everything, somehow emotionally the end pulls together the beginning and the middle and you have come to a new place. And so I needed very badly to go to a new place. And so that's why I wrote the book. Especially after a nudge from the legendary children's book editor, Anne Durrell, who had worked in publishing at Dutton. And I started writing it because I had gone to a meeting of the Children's Book Guild of Washington, and Anne Durrell, who was then at Dutton, was to be the speaker. And I was asked to sit at the head table with the speaker because we sort of took turns doing that. And somebody at the table said, how are the children? You know, you're supposed to say, fine. And somehow terribleness of the previous year just poured out. I had had cancer in the spring and the children thought I was going to die then. And then Lisa really died. So we were a mess. And my friends were somewhat embarrassed as I began pouring out the state of my family, which was definitely not good, and telling the story of Lisa's death. And Darrell said very quietly, you ought to write that story. She said, of course, the child can't die by lightning because no editor would ever believe that. So Catherine wrote what she could. But as you might imagine, she struggled to write the scene in Bridge to Terabithia when it was time for Leslie Burke to die. I often tell the story about when I was writing the book and I realized the next day Leslie Burke was going to die. And the only way I could keep her alive was not to write the next chapter. And so I did everything around the house that I had neglected. And I uh, happened to have lunch with a school friend of mine. She said, uh, how's the book coming? Not knowing what book it was. And I just blurted out, I'm trying to write a story, friendship between a boy and a girl, and the girl dies, and I, I can't let her die. I guess I can't face Lisa's death again. And I still said, I don't think it's Lisa's death you can't face. I think it's yours. Catherine accepted her friend's interpretation and found the courage to confront her own fears and write the death scene. It's my death, I have to face it. And that's when I went back and, and wrote the chapter. They found the Burke girl this morning down in the creek. No, he said, finding his voice. Leslie wouldn't drown. She could swim real good. That old rope you kids been swinging on broke. 
his father went quietly and relentlessly on. They think she must have hit her head on something when she fell. No, he shook his head. No. His father looked up. I'm real sorry, boy. No, Jess was yelling now. I don't believe you. You're lying to me. He looked around again wildly for someone to agree, but they all had their heads down except Maybelle, whose eyes were wide with terror. But Leslie, what if you die? No, he said straight at Maybelle. It's a lie. Leslie ain't dead. I finished it, you know, I just mailed it off because I couldn't stand having it around the house. And Virginia Buckley, who was my editor for 40 years, she'd done three books with me, and this is my fourth. And I knew as soon as I mailed it off that, you know, made a terrible mistake. I mean, you do not send a book like that. I knew it was terrible, and she called me up, and I thought she's going to tell me I've lost whatever talent she thought I had. And uh, she said, I wanted to talk to you about your manuscript. And I said, <laughs> and she said, uh, I laughed through the first two thirds and cried through the last. And I thought, oh, it's all right. She knows what I'm trying to do. Now, she didn't know that I had cancer. She didn't know anything about Lisa's death. But she said, is this a book about friendship or a book about death? And I had thought until that moment it was a book about death. But as soon as she asked me that question, I thought, oh, it's a book about friendship. And she said, that's what I thought. Now you need to go back and write it that way. And she said, in any friendship, both friends grow and change because they know each other. And I can see how Jesse has changed because he knows Leslie, but I don't see any change in Leslie. How has Leslie changed because of Jess's friendship. You know, the great editors are the ones who ask the great questions. <laughs> they don't do things for you. They ask the right question. My friend Susan and I used to play at the Loyola College campus and swing on vines and where we had our terabithia. In my head, that was terabithia. Writer Laurel Snyder, who is the author of Orphan Island and her latest book, My Jasper June, grew up in Baltimore City in the 1970s and 80s. And sometimes she'd write down her own adventures and create books out of little pieces of paper stapled together. And she loved making forts. When I was a kid, I loved to build forts. And I would build pillow forts at home. I would sit under my dining room table with a blanket thrown over the dining room table. I would go out in the yard and or we had a big azalea bush and pretend that was my house. And I think kids like to build forts because the world is run by grown-ups, And there's this illusion when you're in your fort, there's this illusion when you're in your azalea bush or under the dining room table that you are in charge of the space you have created. Like that's your world. And Bridge to Arabithia, and The Secret Garden. There's like a handful of books that I think of as really having done a spectacular job of capturing what it would be like to be in charge of a world. And I think a lot of books that I grew up on did that. It created the sense that like, Terabithia belongs to Jess. And it's the first place in his life that he has control, that he has power, and where he accesses imagination in this full way. 
As Laurel and I talked about imagination and the power of reading such prolific books at a young age, she explored the analogy between making forts and reading. I think there's this huge analogy there. There's this huge parallel, which is that reading should be a fort, right? Reading should be a place where children do have control because it is a safe space for the most part. And if they can't encounter something in the library, if they can't encounter something in a bookshelf, I don't know how they're going to proceed through the world. Especially when you're 10, 11 years old, you are like about to embark, right? You are about to experience new things. I think that you should truly have access to everything. And when I think back on the books that I stumbled on in the library that were probably inappropriate for me because they were sad or because they had a naughty picture in them or because they were too scary, all those books did was give me an indication of the things that might be waiting for me out there. And if I wasn't ready for them, I closed the book. While Laurel read Bridge to Terabithia as a child, she recently read it again as an adult and was struck by how the book stood out to her in some new ways. The family is a little bit painful. Like, that is such a balance to the magic of this friendship between these two kids. You know, but Jess's relationship with his sisters and his parents and the school, like, there's so much in his life that isn't happy. This wonderful thing enters his life, and then it disappears again. It's not something you see in middle grade fiction today very much. It really isn't. That sense that, like, a wonderful thing entered the life of a kid who was otherwise kind of sad, and then it went away again. And now he has to keep going. He has a teacher he likes, and he can run fast, and he likes to draw. These are the things he has. Otherwise, he's poor. He has this complicated family situation. He's picked on at school. I remembered it more nostalgically than I read it as an adult. And maybe that's part of reading as an adult is that you're reading as a parent, sort of. You know, like sort of I'm watching over him and, you know, wishing he had a better lunch or, you know, wanting to put on shoes. I can't help that. But uh, there's just a brutality to it that I think maybe kids read differently in that way, right? I don't remember it feeling quite so brutal. I remember thinking it was amazing that he got to roam the way he did. And it's an amazing thing to have a really deep and wonderful friendship. And certainly in her book, Orphan Island, Laurel takes on these types of themes that children might grapple with on their journey between childhood and adulthood. That's sort of space we live in when we're in between those worlds. And the only way to grow, the only way to live is to move forward into things you have never done before. And there's always some mystery to that and some nervousness to that and also some excitement to that. I think that's, to me, what I would say in the broadest sense, that's what the book's about. Both survival and togetherness. And it can be the thing that supports us and preserves us and provides us with stability, but it can also become a suffocating place and it can also inhibit us and it can also restrain us and define us in ways that we want something beyond. And so, I mean, that's the complication of family. There's the place you're from and there's the place you're going and you need both of them. Orphan Island did make the 2017 National Book Awards long list for young people's literature. It's a profound book that sits with you long after reading it. So Orphan Island is about nine kids who live on an island, and the island is a sort of perfect place, almost a dreamy, idyllic place. And they are by themselves. They have no grown-ups. Nobody cares for them, but the island cares for them. And, and as long as they stay on the island, nothing really can go terribly wrong, and life is good. They fish, and they cook, and they eat, and they roam and wander. But basically, once every year, a small green boat arrives at the island, and there's a very young child in it, and that kid gets out onto the beach, and then the oldest kid on the island has to get in the boat and leave. 
And so the kids are like stair steps and the oldest child then takes on responsibility for training the new child who's just arrived. And that is a very specific relationship because it's the first year for the youngest child on the island, but it's the last year for the oldest child. And so there's this sort of framework to the world. And Orphan Island is the story of Ginny as she knows that the boat is going to return and that when it returns, it's going to come for her. And so that she has to get ready to say goodbye to the island. And sometimes the process of growing involves painful things or involves costs to others or involves learning a difficult lesson. And that doesn't make it a bad thing. It makes it the journey. And that's the power of literature, to take readers on a journey, especially young readers who are trying to make sense of the world, like how they can relate to others, how they move forward into the unknown and say goodbye, or even grieve their childhood for that matter. Writer Margaret Peterson Haddix especially believes that children's book authors bear this responsibility to help young readers navigate new frontiers. In her books, she believes in creating young, relatable characters who also have a strong sense of agency. Well, partly it's a better story if the kids are making decisions for themselves and they're taking charge and they're acting on their own as opposed to just reacting to the adult world. But that's the goal for kids, that they get to the point that they're making their own decisions and that they can take control of their lives. And so that's, I think, a job of children's literature in general to kind of prepare kids for being an adult. Margaret's latest work is The Greystone Secrets. It's a thrilling new mystery sci-fi adventure series that's full of plot twists and moving characters. In the first book, The Strangers, she takes a sense of agency to the extreme. Greystone Secrets is about these three kids named Rochester, Emma, Finn, and their last name is Greystone, and they are 12 and 10 and 8, and they come home from school one day, and normally when they come home from school, their mom's right there ready to greet them at the door, and uh, you know she's happy that they're home. She works from home, so it's a nice break in her day, but on this particular day, they get home, and she's not right there at the door. They can hear something in the kitchen. They go in, and she is totally fixated, staring at her laptop, watching a news report, about three kids in another state who have just been kidnapped. And those three kids who have just been kidnapped are named Rochester, Emma, and Finn. And they are 12 and 10 and 8. And they even have the same birth dates as Rochester, Emma, and Finn Greystone. And of course, they have to figure out what's going on. Their mother starts to act rather strange, and she mysteriously goes away on a business trip leaving Rochester, Emma, and Finn with another parent they barely know. And so they experienced the loss of their only point of parental stability as their dad had passed away years before. As they try to figure out what the heck is going on, the siblings have to unite to find answers. Along the way, they feel abandoned, confused, and they don't know whether they'll ever see their mom again. Margaret says a news article that she had remembered reading many years ago inspired her to write The Greystone Secrets. Years and years and years ago, I used to work as a newspaper reporter, and there was a newspaper column in the paper that I worked for one day. And at the time, I was, I don't know, I was probably maybe 26, 27, wasn't married yet, didn't have kids. It, you know, this was all far in the future as far as thinking about being a, a mother with kids. But this column was about a mother 
who happened to read a news story about three kids who had been killed in a car wreck in another state. And the three kids who were killed were the same ages as her kids. They had the same names as her kids. And the family minivan that they were killed in was the same make, model, and year as the minivan that this woman drove with her own three children. And so I I read that column and the columnist who wrote it did a, a very good job saying, you know, this is such a weird coincidence. And kind of the gist of it was that the mother who read about the three kids who had been killed, she was really freaked out, as you might imagine. And that kind of went through a phase where she was refusing to drive her own minivan because she had too many associations now with this other family who had lost their three children. And, and I was haunted by it. And so then, you know, years pass. I have kids. I'm the mom driving kids around in a minivan. And periodically, I would think about that story and be like, "Ooh, that's awful. You know, that's like that's your nightmare. That's the worst thing that could happen. So I've been thinking about this story for years And then suddenly, about two years ago, that kind of wandered back into my thought process again. And I was like, wait a minute. Of course, it was weird for the mom. But how weird would that type of a coincidence be for the kids if they knew about it? And I had not in all of those decades of thinking about that newspaper column, I'd never once thought of it as an idea for a book. But at that moment, when I was like, well, wait, what's the kid's perspective? I started thinking, well, this would be really interesting from the kids' perspective, and it would be a very interesting thing to explore. The idea of the three kids, kind of the the mirror image kids all being killed, that seemed way too sad and way too extreme for me to write about for the kids' books. But I thought, what if they're still alive, but they're kidnapped? And what if you know, there's some idea that, wait, we have to go rescue those kids who are like us? So that was kind of the impetus. Margaret never found out what happened, but as a writer, she thinks authors can really help kids face these inexplicable moments in life. And that's why she wants books like Bridge to Terabithia to exist. Because like Margaret's story, Laurel's book Orphan Island, and like Jess finding out about Leslie in Bridge to Terabithia, sometimes things happen and we can't explain them. Sometimes there are just no answers, especially when it comes to death. I remember reading it as an adult and right at the point that I I think it was about the time there was discussion that this movie was going to come out. And I have this memory of talking to other mothers. My kids were, I would say, maybe early elementary school at the time. And I can remember talking to other mothers about the book and then the fact that this movie was going to come out. And I don't have a specific memory of exactly who said this, but it seems like some of the mothers were like, well, you know, the kid's best friend dies in that book. And how are they going to do that in a movie? That's just too awful. We shouldn't expose kids to things like this. And and, and at that point, I had already written at, at least a couple books and I had one of my books, there's a character who dies and I had had people who were concerned. They they thought, well, maybe I was going to bring her back. Maybe she wasn't really dead because um, it was part of a book that's part of a series. And I felt that that wasn't fair to do to kids to kind of switch that off. And so I, I was that mom who was disagreeing with other people. Kids need to learn about death. And um, so at that point, I'm like, wait, I need to read this book. I haven't read this book and I'm trying to talk about it. 
Margaret recently read the book again, and for her, Leslie's death scene is tough, but it's paramount. Pretty much everything that is described after Leslie's death and the way Jess deals with the grief, that just seems so incredibly real to me. Because by the time I was reading the book, I have had people that I was close to die. And that whole sense of the whole world's a different place and you feel betrayed by it. And the way you get angry, you're kind of, I'm not who I was five minutes ago. The world is not what it was five minutes ago. I just think she did that amazingly well, just incredibly well. I don't think there's a word in that that doesn't work. And Margaret appreciates how Katherine Patterson navigates readers through those difficult moments in which intense feelings bubble up in a way that a child may have never experienced before. And in some cases, maybe they have. I think for a book to be classic and to appeal to generation after generation after generation, it has to deal with issues that kids can relate to in each generation. I think the issues that are raised in this book are timeless issues. And unfortunately, death is something everybody has to learn to deal with eventually. I mean, obviously, this is fiction, but that sense that you get that Jess really existed and really had to deal with this. And and one of the reasons this is such a sad book is because you feel like the world lost something when Leslie died. And of course, she's fictional. But reading the book, you still feel like the world has lost something when she died. And I think that will always be there. I I don't care how advanced our technology gets. I think those are emotions that generations will always have. When I asked Katherine Patterson to weigh in on what makes a book a classic, she told me that it's all of us. The readers, they decide (laughs) that it's worthy of of reading and rereading and keeping and passing down to their own children. I don't know that writers have a lot to do with it. If somebody said, now, would you please sit down and write a classic? (laughs) No, it's not possible. I think, you know, the, the classic is the book that's going to endure and the readers choose what's going to endure. I'm sure there are plenty of good books that have been lost because not enough people have chosen to love them. So that's what makes it classic. What I learned, and I learned this, I think, gradually, and probably on looking back when I was trying to figure out why people love Bridge Terabithia so much, I thought, well, it's when the writer shares the very deepest part of themselves, which would include both the light and the dark and the good and the bad, when the writer's willing to do that, then somehow it gives the reader permission to share that. And it's in that deep sharing that the real book takes life, the deepest part of both reader and writer sharing who they are. And the intimacy that you have with readers is absolutely phenomenal. And most of these people I will never see, but They've brought to my book the deepest part of themselves, and I tried to give them the deepest part of myself. Just what does Catherine think will happen to books in the future? What are the chances that kids will still be reading Bridge to Terabithia 50 years from now? I think people will see 
the value of actual reading and what literature can do for them that really nothing else can. And will people be reading Bridge to Cherbithia 100 years from now? I don't know. Uh, it may have, you know, spun its life out and died a natural death. I will be around to know. And I don't think that that's where I have to be immortal. I love it that people still love the book after all these years. Grateful that it still means something to the children that read it, even though some people might feel it's very dated. But uh, I don't believe in the death of books. I think the books will survive. And I don't think I need to worry about whose books are going to survive. That's the reader's choice, not mine. And I won't be around to mourn the death of books I love. Special thanks to Catherine Patterson, Laurel Snyder, and Margaret Peterson Haddix for joining us. You can find out more about their books at rememberreading.com. You can also sign up for the newsletter there and find giveaways and more content. And we'd love to hear from you about your favorite classic. Email us at readingpod at harpercollins.com. Or you can tweet us at readingpod to start the conversation yourself. And I just want to take a second to thank all of you out there who are spreading the word about the podcast. We see you. We see your tweets. We see your messages. And a little buzz goes such a long way. If you haven't already, please drop by our iTunes page and leave us a rating. Remember Reading's producers are Stephanie Marudis of Kuvenda Media and Irina Jorov. I'm Lindsay Jacobson of HarperCollins. Thanks for listening. Until next time.